Hello and welcome to the Who's He podcast companion special. In this occasional series of podcasts, I'll be talking to various guests about the people who travel with the Doctor. Yes, the companions. From kilt-wearing Highlanders to the fastest typists from Chiswick, from square-jawed medical officers to tin dogs. Our guests talk about their favourite person that travelled in the TARDIS and the reasons why these characters have resonated with them. My guest this evening is podcaster, designer and multimedia maverick. Um, and you told me to say that, didn't you? I did, because the alternative is saying jack of all trades, master of none. none. So yeah. I think multimedia <laughs> maverick sounds snazzier. <laughs> yes, um, everyone, this is um, Ash Farbrother. And, uh, uh, first time on this podcast as well, isn't it? Yes. Although we've been on podcasts before. Um, on other podcasts, yes. Yes. You were you were part of the um, the Jerry Anderson two parter that we did on Nights at the Round Table. I was indeed, wasn't I? Yes, yeah, very much yeah. enjoyed. It. And uh, and on other things as well, other 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 podcasts such as uh, uh, Faris Project. I think we were on the, one of the Bond ones they did. Oh yes, because I was making. I think I was defending Tomorrow Never Dies or something, which yeah, my... didn't go down well. <laughs> I think mine was Goldeneye, wasn't it, if I remember rightly. So, uh, yes. But anyway, never what we've done in the past. Uh, what are you up to at the moment? Um, well, at the moment, um, podcasting is a thing that happens sometimes, allowing for time zones and, and whatnot. Yes. Um, a lot of time recently I've been spent actually expanding the design and multimedia part, um, partly for the Convention 9 Worlds, yeah. which I'm also involved in, and uh, also... I've been making forays into the world of professional wrestling. Now, which... I was going to say, not, not as a wrestler, I assume. Not yet. Give <laughs> <laughs> a time, man. One, one doesn't break into that overnight. But um, <laughs> but no, I've, I, I made friends with a, uh, a couple who are um, uh, bookers, promotion owners. Hmm. Um, and what originally started out as me just doing cute little cartoons, because I was teaching myself to draw again, basically, because I've been doing design for ages. Yeah. Um, but actually, the concept of drawing, it's not something I've been doing as much of. So I got the Apple Pencil for my iPad. Okay. And I was starting to teach myself how to draw on that. So it's like, oh, can you draw this wrestler as a koala? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Off I go. And then they sent me a message saying, oh, we really want to do this politically motivated T-shirt that um, has a picture of a fascist, not Donald Trump, not not <laughs> anyone specifically, but let's just call him a fascist. A fascist, yeah. Yeah, being pile-driven by a um, a female professional wrestler. Okay. With the tagline, pile driver fascist. And they said the trick is, is one, obviously, it can't specifically be Donald Trump because it just can't be specifically Donald Trump. So I'm like, okay, don't make okay. it look too much okay. like Donald Trump. So I made him thin. <laughs> um, and uh, and also, can you not make it not look sexual? Because if, if you're familiar with what a pile driver move is, yes, it quite indeed, often yes. involves one person's head being in another person's crotch, in fact, both. Hmm. So that was actually the more challenging bit. So I basically spent a lot of time looking on Google, looking at variations on the pile driver move until I found one to base it off of that I went, that, that'll do, that'll do me, I'll do that. Yeah. Did this, um, <laughs> draw, did this design drawing, and now I'm doing a lot more stuff for them moving forward. And it's, it's great. They're wonderful people to work for, and I'm meeting really interesting people as a result. And who knows what projects it may give birth to in the future. 
Exactly, exactly. Now, where this is obviously um, from your other your other podcasts, your sort of, I will be right in saying your your sort of sort of great interests are horror and also wrestling as well. Um, well, now, and and Doctor Who and Doctor Who, obviously that's why you're oh, you're here obviously to talk about a companion which we'll come to later. Um, I actually have a link as well, a link to link the professional wrestling with the Doctor Who. Oh right, okay, okay. Well, we should, we'll we should, save that. We'll save that. Indeed, indeed. Now, um, before we get onto the, the horror aspect of things, where did the interest in wrestling come from? Because was this something with the what was it was it the old, the old WWF? Is that is that where your interest began, or was it from the British wrestling? It was World of Sport. It was World of Sport on a Saturday with yep. my granddad. Yeah. Um, and. I was catching it right at the tail end, just before ITV took it off the air, mm. when it was as much a parody of itself as it was. Because at that, I mean, Big Daddy Shirley Crabtree was always, um, which for anyone that's listening that might not know, was basically this bolding ball of butter that only <laughs> really got where he was because his brother ran the promotion. Or that's right. His, yeah. yeah. Um, but he was very charismatic and which, to be honest, in wrestling, particularly in the 80s, charisma got you further than athletic ability. Yes. But he was kind of still in it and they were still showing uh, some of the import wrestlers that were coming over from Canada, names that would later go on to be part of the WWF. Yeah. But so I was watching that on a Saturday and there was the A-Team and there was also a Japanese animated series called Starfleet. Yes, remember that of, as well. Yeah. Yeah. There we yeah. Go. Um, and my and my granddad as well uh, was ex I think ex merchant navy, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of ex navvies that went on to be wrestlers. So I actually kind of learned a bit about behind the business and the fact that oh they're not actually fighting at quite a young age. Yeah, it didn't ruin it for me. You know, it didn't ruin it for me at all because it's just like oh it's just another form of drama. It's another form of entertainment. It's no different. From Doctor Who, it's no different from Starfleet. It's no different from the A Team. It's just something that's being, because you know, very rarely does a TV show actually keep winking at the camera, going, "This isn't real." Uh, yeah, know? yeah. At no point, at no point does Matt Smith just look at the camera and wink and go, "I'm pretending." Yeah, there's not. Like, so, yeah, there's no fourth wall break in there, is there at all? No, they're nah. presenting what they're doing as real, and professional wrestling is exactly the same. Yeah, it's no different. But it has a much bigger barrier to overcome in being like, you know, it's now actually socially acceptable to go around and say, I'm a Doctor Who fan. Yes. It's really not. It's still there's still a <laughs> lot of um, assumptions associated with saying I'm a professional wrestling fan. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it, I, there, there is that. I, I think that that stigma attached to it. It's, it's all make believe, you know, it's just showbiz. Um, but surely that isn't that why people watch it? Yeah. It is. It's. It's. I mean. It's. Yes. It's make believe. Yes. It's showbiz. But it also is quite often a large amount of athletic ability behind oh, it. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you and I could not, you know, go into a ring and climb up a twenty-foot steel cage, and then fall off it, and get up and walk away. And no. people can say what they like of all oh, their fake chairs or their fake tables. Unless there is like a proper crash mat, you cannot fall fake falling twenty foot. No, you can't. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm sure Houdini might have had a few ideas, but generally speaking, if you see someone fall ten foot, twelve foot, whatever, through a table, it's gonna hurt. Yes, it will do. It <laughs> but, will um, do. 
But anyway, so I started with my granddad and um, World of Sport ended. And then that was just as I was going up and moving around schools. I went to a new school and I made a friend and that friend had early Sky television. And suddenly I was getting videotapes of WrestleMania and videotapes of the Royal Rumble. And, oh, look at these guys. I mean, you know, this isn't Shirley Crabtree. These guys are huge monsters. And this one appears to be a police officer. And that one's carrying a snake. And this one is the same color as the inside of a Jaffa cake. That's amazing. (laughs) And and I never left it at that point. I drifted away probably about age 13, 14, because the product was really awful and just failing to connect with me on any level. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've been a fan ever since, not necessarily of the WWF, now WWE, but of professional wrestling in general. Uh, particularly with the internet, I was suddenly finding companies from all over the world that mm. I could send postal orders to people and they would send me videotapes that were badly converted from NTSC or Japan or whatever. Yeah. And, and I'd be discovering crazy stuff like masked wrestlers, luchadors from Mexico, um, Japanese deathmatch wrestling, which is horrific as, <laughs> as a 15 60 year old horror fan there was definitely an appeal because a lot yes. of the time i was watching it going oh that must be fake blood and then as i get older i'm like oh wait no they really were hitting each other with glass light tubes okay okay they're okay. they're bonkers that's yes. fine yes yeah. indeed yeah now the thing is i i grew up watching the world of sport wrestling as well my 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 dad used to take me um down to the um it's now called Lewisham Theatre. I think it was just called the Town Hall, the Catford Town Hall back then. Um, usually on a Monday night, there'd be wrestling down there. Um, and I think on at least one occasion, World of Sport were um, were recording um, the, the wrestling from Catford. And we we saw, there was the, I may remember the, I don't know if anyone else remember out there, the, the commentator, Kent Walton. Uh, sort of uh, used to um, as afternoon grapple fans, I think was his um, his tagline, wasn't it? To introduce the wrestling, if I remember rightly. Or grap fans. Or gra- like grap, grap fans. fans. Yeah. So, um, so I, makes I, you sound like a wino, really. It does but... actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I've I've got so many fond memories of going. My dad taking me down to, and I saw the likes of Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks. Um, oh, Jim Brace, Mick McManus. Cat Weasel. Rollerball Rocco. Rollerball Rocco. Yeah, I mean, my dad's getting very upset at Rollerball Rocco. He, 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 won a, he won a fight very, very dirtily, and he was sort of parading around the ring, and my, my, my dad gave him a V salute. Actually, I'll, I'll, ne- I'll never for, uh, forget that. So, yeah, he got right just, into it. So. <laughs> I'm just thinking who else? Um, Adrian Adonis you might have seen, uh, oh, who was one what? of the... He was kind of like more of an exotic wrestler. Yes. He was kind of doing... He was basically a wrestling Julian Clary. Was he was, yeah. I mean, I saw uh, a beautiful Bobby Barnes. Dynamite, I think, Dynamite, Dynamite Kid. Kid Tom yeah. Billington. Yeah, yeah, I saw them. Uh, oh, crikey, there's so many. Strongman Alan Dennison. Um, Iron Fist Clive Myers. Uh, Dave Butcher Bond. Johnny Kincaid, the Sunshine Kid. Um, Johnny Saint. Johnny Saint, yes, I saw Johnny Saint. Um, Pat only Roach recently, Johnny well. Saint only recently wrestled his retirement match. Really? Yeah, like um, no, not Johnny Saint. Johnny Kidd, sorry, Johnny Kidd only recently wrestled his retirement match, which was also of that era. I think Johnny Saint, but um, but yeah, oh, who was it? Oh, you probably might have seen some of the Hart family from Calgary, Canada, because uh, Bret Hart and Owen Hart. And that various clan and their brothers used to get flown over to England and yeah. work the world of sport tapings as well. Yeah, I certainly, and, I certainly saw them on the on the telly. I never, I don't think I ever saw them 
at, at Catford, but I certainly saw them on the telly in the sort of the sort of the eighties. Um, I think they'd be they'd have been at York Hall or somewhere similar, which is still a hotbed for wrestling today. There's still a lot of promotions that work York Hall. And um, well, I was going to say, and, what, what, do you, what do you think of of British wrestling now? Because you, did you see that? Um, sorry for, for non UK listeners here. We're, we're sort of really going off on a world of sport tangent. But did you see that um, the world of sport wrestling special they had on over sort of around about New New Year Christmas time? Um, I did. What what did you make of it? I thought it was completely unrepresentative of where British wrestling is right now. Yes. I, I thought they were trying to do a... that It was like their version of WrestleMania, really, wasn't it? Well, they, I think they were trying to let make a... Let's make a modern version of World of Sport, but unfortunately, World of Sport at the point when it was taken off ITV. Mm. I mean, uh, the big guy that they were pushing, who any um, overseas listeners might have seen if they watch wrestling at all, a guy called Grado. And they were kind of pushing him as their big good guy, their big face. Yes. But they yes. were pushing him in the same way as Big Daddy was. Yeah. So it would have been kind of like, if, essentially, do you remember the bit in the Adventure of Space and Time where you had Matt Smith's doctor looking across the console at William Hartnell? Yeah. You could have, if it was a drama being made of World of Sport, you could have had, you could have had, you know... Big Daddy, someone playing Big Daddy, Peter <laughs> Kay playing Big Daddy, um, and Grado, but it'd be in a Greg's and be passing off like a steak bake or something. <laughs> That's the kind of handover they were trying to do. And it was horrible, it was campy. And the stupid thing is, a couple of months later, the WWE came in and did a two night UK tournament from yeah. Blackpool that they aired on their network, their online mm. network. And I watched that and I'm like, That's a better representation of what British wrestling is. Yeah. Um, I mean, British wrestling right now, you've got a Scottish company going around that's filling 7,000 CO2 venues uh, called ICW. They've had two documentaries on the BBC. Mm. You've got um, uh, the companies that I'm working with, Pro Wrestling Eve and XWA, who are not... Uh, uh, Pro Wrestling Eve is a women's only promotion. It, it's, it's all women wrestlers, and they're flying in wrestlers from all over the world to compete with the best of British talent, hmm. which is actually a pool that is depleting on both men and women's side because the WWE are noticing them and going, we'll have them, and sending them off to Florida to train up to become WWE-style wrestlers. Yeah. So I think British wrestling is actually at its strongest it's ever been, but World of Sport was a terrible representation of that. And it may have been successful with the casual audience and it may have got the nostalgia vote with some people, but I'm not sure it will be enough to carry it on. No, I, I do get the feeling that it was, it, it was like a pilot to try and possibly lead to a, to a series. Um, and they did interview, I mean, watching it, they, they interviewed like Mark Rocco and I think they interviewed Johnny Saint as well. And um, Adrian Street, I don't know if Adrian Street was on that one. I think it was on another documentary I watched about British wrestling. I think it was on BBC Four um, fairly recently, but um, it sort of broke up the flow of the program. It was a very odd beast that program. It, it, it really was. It, it made the nineties gladiators look high budget. Yes, it certainly did, and it didn't have that that Saturday afternoon feel because obviously it was filmed in a TV studio as well. It, it didn't have that, you know, as I said, coming from the Catford Town Hall. You know, it, it needed that atmosphere and it didn't have it. They could have filmed it in Blackpool. That would have been an amazing place to film because that was steeped in British wrestling history. William Regal, who was big in WCW and the WWF, is from Blackpool. And he always talks about wrestling there in his youth. Yeah. Um, 
they could have filmed it in York Hall. They couldn't have filmed it in Fairfield Halls in Croydon because that's currently closed for redevelopment. But exactly, again, there, yeah. are so many, there are so many legacy venues they could have gone to and they could have made it a huge thing. And they didn't. And, no. And they made it feel cheap. They made, yeah, say Gladiators from the 90s looks better than this did now. And that was pretty dire, wasn't it? I'll be honest, I've been watching it recently on a, on a UK television channel. It's pretty damn good, actually. Oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah. It's, apart from John Fashnu, it's aged amazingly well. Oh, what was, what was it? Aruga, what we used to say all the time. Uh, Aruga? No, that's cooking. Aruga. Aruga. Which, oh, right, okay. which he stole from Craig Charles of Red Dwarf fame. Yes, he did, didn't he? God, dear. Is there anything original about John Fashnu? I, I, I honestly don't know, but... No, there's not. No, okay, I can't. No, there no I can't. No. no, there wasn't. No, I can't think of anything at all. Can't think of it at all. So, um, obviously, we we sort of briefly sort of touched on um, the, the rest of our film. We could sort of probably talk about that for quite some time. But um, obviously, your you other sort of big interest is horror as well. And obviously, one of the the podcasts you've, you've been previously involved in, um, Hammer's Horror. Um, what sort of started off your your sort of love affair with with all things horror? Because my sort of route into it. Um, was at school with with the Dennis Gifford uh, pictorial history of horror, which someone used to bring into the playground, and we'd be looking at that at, at, at playtime. This is in like junior school, um, and then I was allowed to start and watch the the horror double bill on BBC Two in like the late seventies, early eighties. So that that was my route into it. Um, but what what was yours? How did you how did you sort of get started? Um, there were a couple of things. Uh, one was my dad actually encouraging me to record Hammer Horror late night films that were showing on ITV. Okay. The one that stuck with me the most was uh, Quatermass and the Pit. Yes. Which is still my favourite Hammer film. And I know it's more sci-fi than horror, but it scared the crap out of me at the time. Uh, it's still a damn good film. It really is. Yeah. Um, obviously, Doctor Who actually brought me into horror a bit because if you look at some of those early video releases, Talents of Wang Chiang, mm-hmm. Pyramids of Mars... They're they're quintessential gothic Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, they certainly are. Um, And then you've got when I got a portable television in my room in the late 80s, early 90s, which was, um, it would have been early 90s, which was around the time when I got my, the reason I had it was so I didn't keep using the downstairs television for Super Nintendo. (laughs) Right, okay. But it was one of these old, the old school portable televisions, which had the loop on the back, you know, for your portable air. Oh, yes, yes. Which, oh, you know, would well. only get a signal if you were halfway up Crystal Palace Tower. Yeah. But we still tried. And at that point, suddenly, I'd be able to go through the television pages and go, ITV's showing Alien tonight. That sounds cool. I like Aliens. Or, I've heard of this film. I've heard of Night of the Living Dead. Or, you know, to bring forward a few years, Ghost Watch. Mm. And... And so, basically, watching horror films on fuzzy, snow-covered, portable aerial television with the volume turned down so low that dialogue was not happening, really, (laughs) for the most part. I I would actually, if I was listening to dialogue, it's because I had my ear against the side of the television, which meant I was missing what was on the screen. But but then there was that um because I, I mean i missed the video nasties by a few years i caught the tail end of it as being aware of it mm. but to actually be actively part of it didn't happen but um but then as i got a bit older and i got a bit sneakier i was able to set timer records to go off to record channel four or whatever was showing a horror film at one o'clock in the morning 
but then be up early enough in the morning that I'd be the first person in the living room so I could quickly sneak the videotape out. And there you go. I suddenly had a new horror film. I had Dawn of the Dead on tape. Or I had Evil Dead 2 or whatever. It probably wasn't Evil Dead 2, but, you know, something. Yeah. You know. Um, But but, uh, that kind of grew. And then I went to a school where... I would have to walk to and from the, t- the bus dropped us off in town and it dropped us off by a bingo hall that had a little news agents by it. And this little news agents, for some reason, just had the most amazing selection of import magazines and they carried Fangoria. Mm. Remember it? Yeah. I, I remember oh, of, my God. Yeah. Flicking through that when I was a kid, actually, Fangoria. Yeah. Well, what I used to do was I used to get my lunch money every day. <clears throat> yeah. And I always used to underspend slightly. So as the month went on, I'd have the two or three pounds I needed to get an issue of Fangoria. And woe betide me if my mother found it. <laughs> was it worse than, think she, well, I say worse than finding porn? <laughs> probably. I mean, she never found that. But, um, um, and it's interesting because thinking about buying Fangoria and stuff at an early age and seeing those early magazines and being a horror fan back then was actually is actually still like being a wrestling fan now. You like yeah. horror films? Oh, you're weird. You know, it, it's kind of like... Do you still think there's, there's that stigma attached to it, watching horror? No, no, no. Horror's fine now. Horror's trendy. Horror's cool. Horror makes money. You know, you've got um, you've got uh, uh, the Fright Fest in London that is an entire week or two mm, of taking right. over yeah. one of the biggest, you know, one of the biggest cinemas and showing all these horror films. Halloween has become a massive thing in the UK now, which I love. You know, but but it, it so it's become cool. It's become, I guess, mainstream to a degree. I mean, if you look at things we've had in the past couple of years, like the Conjuring movies, or uh, or their spin-offs with the Annabelle, uh, mm. the, the Poison Doll movie, and and even while it wasn't as successful, uh, Blair Witch, you know, it was still the fact that there was a new Blair Witch movie was suddenly boom. This is a big thing. Yeah. After, because it was a bit of a rug pull that one, wasn't it? Then it go under a different name to begin with, and all of a sudden, what you're actually watching is another Blair Witch film. I'll be honest, I'd have gone further with it. I'd have just like not act. I would have um, not even put anywhere in there. This is a sequel, like in anywhere in the PR. This is a sequel to the Blair Witch because hmm. you imagine people go and see it because people would have gone and seen it anyway. Yeah, and then suddenly halfway yeah. through, they're like, "This reminds me of the Blair Witch Project," and then the stick figures start to appear. And it's like, this is the Blair Witch, the Witch Project. Project. Yeah. Word of mouth would have made that film more money than what they actually got. Well, because... it, was, it was word of mouth that that's why the, the first film was such a success, wasn't it? So, which I, which I must admit, I didn't enjoy. I didn't enjoy the first Blair Witch. I, I felt kind of, um, kind of cheated. And, and I voiced my displeasure when, when the credits rolled at the end, actually, in, in the cinema. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't have a good history with that movie. I I really enjoyed the original. I like found footage movies. I think they're one of my favourite little subgenres. Mm. Um, and I actually really enjoyed the sequel. Um, I I I really really got it. I thought it was great. I thought it was especially good if you ignored all the. I thought it was especially good if you ignored all the found footage movies that had come after the original, because then mm-hmm. it didn't seem like it left anything behind. Yeah, yeah um, I know you mean. But but yeah, I mean, yeah, horror's fashionable now. Um, you know, people 
it, it's become much more integrated part of pop cult, of uh, society and culture in general. Mm. You know, so. Well, what do you make all those sort? There's a, there's a appears um, to be a lot of remakes of old sort of classic horror films. There's going to be like another Halloween film coming out, isn't there? Which I believe John Carpenter's actually involved in this time, isn't he? He's producing. He may be doing the score. He's acting as a creative consultant. And the thing is, is like, I'll be honest. At this point, I don't think there are any films I consider to be untouchable as regards remakes. Because you know what? If I don't want to see it, I won't see it. Yeah. People that get bent out of shape about Ghostbusters, people that get bent out of shape about Halloween, people that get bent out of shape about Dawn of the Dead. It's like, if you want to go and see it and have an opinion on it, fine. Yeah. If you don't, just don't bother. Just don't see it. I mean, the thing is, I do not like the Rob Zombie Halloween films. Hmm. It's not because they're Halloween films. I just don't really like them as films. Yeah. I've no issue with the fact that Rob Zombie decided he wanted to remake Halloween. I, I, you know, I, I'm just, I didn't like them as films. Just like I, I really enjoyed the Evil Dead remake that they did, and I especially enjoyed, you know, what they then did with the TV series of Ash versus the Evil Dead, which I still um, haven't seen. Actually, I still haven't seen that. Oh, you need to rectify that. You can get it in HMV cheap now on DVD. So oh, cool. Well, that's not, n- no excuse then, really, is it? Little, little plug for HMV, still supporting <laughs> my local. <laughs> HMV is now an independent retailer, almost. I mean, I know they've still got branches anywhere, but you go into one and it feels like an independent it retailer. It does. I know, I know exactly what you mean, actually. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, I don't have an issue with remakes. I mean, you look at what we've got going on now at the moment. Uh, this week, we've got uh, Kong of Skull Island. Yes. Which is kind of a remake. And I'm overjoyed that they're doing that because Peter Jackson, I do like his stuff, but his King Kong was boring as hell. Yes, it was. Totally it was agree. about an hour too long. Um, and I really like this one because, let's be honest, this is a legendary pictures who just did Godzilla a couple of years ago. We know where this is going. Yes. And I'm very cool with that because as much as I love Toho, you know, King Kong in the Toho, Godzilla versus King Kong, he looked like a sentient rug, <laughs> even by... Even by the man in suit standards of the day, he looked like he'd been dragged through a shitty hedge backwards. Yes, it was he not did. a good look. It wasn't so, really, was it? But <laughs> Yeah, so so I'm overjoyed with that. You know, I'm I'm fine with people remaking stuff. I'm fine with them doing it because at the end of the day, how many different versions of Hamlet have we had? Yes, exactly. Exactly. I think this is where people sort of get hung up that as you say, that they hold the if you want to use like Halloween as a as, a, as an example, it's held in such high esteem. And if someone's had the temerity to to you know to to do a remake of it, I mean, they won't go and watch it on principle as far as they're concerned. But I mean, as you say, they might enjoy you. I would say as films, you didn't enjoy the Rob Zombie ones. I only watched it once, so I can't. It's fairly late at night as well, so I can't really remember too much about his version of it. To be perfectly fair, um, but I. I... Yeah. It's just, I think it's also, maybe it's because I'm becoming a grumpy old man, but I'm just like, you know what, I see people on there raging about remakes, and then I look at society as a whole and stuff mm. we've got going on politically and societally and various forms of hate crime on the rise and all this stuff, and I'm just like, and you are raging about a remake. I mean, okay, everyone's entitled to an opinion, but really this seems to be the all-consuming fire in your life <laughs> yes yeah there are far more important things to to worry about really isn't it? Or, or rage against yeah and i just like 
don't like it, that's fine, but just shut up. And then went, and then, well, no, no, it's not even that, but just like, just don't like it, that's fine, but don't let it consume your life. And especially when other people say, hey, I do like this, don't shit on them. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't, don't, you know, like if there's a, a, a lot of people out there that like the Ghostbusters remake, awesome. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. And there's a lot of people out there that it's going to be their generation's Ghostbusters. Yes, exactly. Particularly, here we are, the day after International Women's Day, there's going to be a lot of young women that are going to see that, and that crew is their Ghostbusters, and they're going to carry it forward, and they're going to be dressed as them this Halloween, or last Halloween, or whatever. And yeah. that's brilliant. That's great. That's wonderful. Don't shit on them for enjoying it. There's no need for it. No, exactly. That's my rant out of the way. I'm done now. <laughs> Well, um, it kind of sort of leads on to um, our main topic, really, sort of other, sort of, other sort of um, more important things to talk about, if you're, or, or rage, or not, not rage against. But um, now, obviously, the reason you're you're joining me on the podcast this evening is to talk about your favourite Doctor Who companpanion, as this is a companion special, after all. Um, oh yes, that was the reason. We there was a there was a we reason talking about wrestling. <laughs> so um, you've you've previously said um because you you mentioned you were reading a book about this particular person um earlier so um it's ace isn't it it is ace who i think i mean sylvester mccoy was not the first doctor i saw but mm. he was my doctor yeah and therefore ace was my companion um longest reigning companion for me because of course followed on through the new adventures yeah um i did mention earlier that there was a bridge between wrestling and doctor who yes now i'm intrigued with this what is what is this bridge um uh one of the couple that uh, owns the promotions that i'm doing work for <clears throat> uh, well i think they're both doctor who fans yeah but um but but i think he is an even bigger doctor who fan and dan one of their dogs is called ace Oh right, okay. Which I'm just like as soon as as soon as I heard that one of their dogs was called Ace, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna get on fine with these yeah, guys. Exactly. This is gonna be good. <laughs> but anyway, that was the connection. Um, but yeah, but so I the first Doctor Who season that I have a true a hundred percent recollection of, like literally every single episode, every single opening and closing, and ident for Bergerac at the end. <laughs> yeah, would be would be season twenty five. So that's Remembrance of the Daleks, the greatest show in the galaxy, I think, isn't it? Was that all? Yeah, 20, yeah. yeah, 25 glorious years, the 25th anniversary season. Yeah. And that was Ace's first full run of being a companion, because she was introduced at the tail end of the last season with Dragonfire. That's right, yeah. Um, originally, no, Siri, I said Dragonfire, not what, what the hell? My iPhone apparently responds to the word Dragonfire. Oh, right, <laughs> and that, that was, was that... <laughs> That was Siri going, how Siri. can I help you? <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, but but uh, Sophie Aldred originally auditioned for the role of Ray in Delta and the Bannerman. Mm. Because on the back of her audition picture, her agent wrote, has own leathers. Which is... <laughs> that's an interesting thing to put as an audition picture. It's actually, yeah. Having your own leathers opens doors, apparently. So, <laughs> but I then, must try that in my next interview I go to. Yeah, just so, you know, I, I like have my own letters. <laughs> yeah, but but when auditioned for Ray, also read for a role in a three-episode story called Dragonfire. Yeah, and then she got the call, and they said, "Oh well, um, you've got the role, but 
it might be more than three episodes. <laughs> and apparently she was um, working in a play with John Scott Martin at the time, who was stood right behind her when she got the news that she'd got the role. <laughs> okay. And uh, John Scott Martin, of course, well known as uh, a Dalek, basically. Yes. And many other things. Many other but, things, yeah. But, but mainly a Dalek. And... Um, Sorry, now now the PlayStation camera has responded to something I've said. <laughs> PlayStation, cancel. <laughs> this You're going to have fun editing this. I say, this is all staying in, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. As, as your, um, your house turns against you, it seems. <laughs> the house was clearly more into Mel as a companion, Obviously I guess. was, yeah. Or John Scott Martin, one of the two, but... <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so, so she got the role in Dragonfire. It's not a great story. It's got some of the most amazing, horrific special effects of the McCoy era. Yes, with the melting it has. Of Kane. Yeah. But, but um, even then, Ace is introduced to this character that is, of the time, young and hip and with it and, and street smart, or certainly more street smart than Bonnie Langford. Um, <laughs> That's not odd, really, is it? <laughs> yeah. Does Peace Pottage even have a street? You know, it's... Is yeah, up for debate. Exactly. But, but then you have season 24 and suddenly bang, Remembrance of the Daleks. And here you have this young woman that's being portrayed at least young enough that I might be able to identify with because she's meant to be like 18. That's right. Yeah. 17, 18. Because um, I'm guessing she she, dev- she didn't finish school and the doctor didn't want her drinking in, um, in, in a later story. So... Mm. I guess that, but but then then bang, she's back in her own past. She's fighting Daleks. She's fighting fascism. Yes, yeah, they, 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 they do have some very very good stories for. Um, well, I'll say good, maybe not good stories because I'm mean, unfortunately the McCoy is not not fondly remembered uh, uh, by by many, unfortunately. But um, but there was a lot of good ideas in there, wasn't there for Ace really? There was, and yes, the McCoy era isn't fondly remembered because everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Yeah, but they're wrong on that one. Because I missed a lot of Ace because I I kind of stopped watching round about that time. I sort of kind of lost interest in Doctor Who. So um, I didn't get out. Uh, I know. Well, I actually started losing interest round about the Colin Baker era, to be honest. Um, so I. Ace was a little bit of a mystery to me until, until I started watching the, the um, I think it was on UK Gold where we were repeating Doctor what they had left the Doctor from the beginning right up until uh, up until Survival, um, and someone was, was recording them for me, giving us sort of big, here's a big bag of tapes to watch, Phil. So, and that's how I caught up with with Ace. Really, that that was my real f- sort of first exposure to it. it quite a few years later. So, and, I mean, looking back at it now. I mean, Doctor Who's always done politics. If you look at uh, mm. ones I just rewatched recently in the John Pertwee era, the Peloton stories. Yeah, there was there was stuff to do with the EU in there joining the EU, and oh, then no. there was stuff to do with the miner strikes in there. Um, and and so it's always had those. It's always had the ability to be political. But then we get to season twenty four, and the writing is very clearly on the wall. And that writing is we hate Thatcher. Yeah. Um, because suddenly you have them tackling racism in Remembrance of the Daleks and xenophobia and right-wing movements. Mm. Uh, in The Happiness Patrol, you also kind of go into that fascist dictator world. Um, Silver Nemesis is just silly. <laughs> uh, 
that's just i mean actually even that has nazis in it you know it's, <laughs> it's silly it's silly nemesis but it's got nazis and yeah. then you've got greater show in the galaxy which is just weird it is weird it's one of my favorite that, mccoy stories actually that one because it's weird it's weird it's also really vicious to the fans because there is a fanboy in there yes, that, the... that meets a sticky end <laughs> but but for the first time in a long time the companion isn't just there to scream and go what's going on doctor she's taking an active role yeah the stories are actually in times revolving around her I mean, you look at remembrance of the daleks ace is actually one of the most important characters she has she is betrayed in this story yes she 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 kind of has her first inklings of falling in love in this story and that crush is betrayed and it, it 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 started a different era of Doctor Who, something that continues in the new Who, which is sometimes the show is more about the companion than it is the Doctor. Mm-hmm. And some people like that and some people don't. But some of the people who don't like that are some of the same people that said, well, the problem with the Doctor is we find out too much about him. I'm yeah. like, well, if you have stories based on the Doctor and you don't find stuff out about him, then it's going to get very dull very quickly. Exactly. I mean, I love classic Who, but some of these stories do drag. Yes, they could. A lot of them. I mean, I'm a big Pertwee fan, but a lot of his stories could. Some of them could be, you know, a, a good two episodes shorter than they are. You know, so some, yeah. of, those, some of those six parters do drag sometimes. I'll freely Both admit Peladon. that. Both Peladon yes. stories could have been a five parter easily and a four parter with a bit of trimming. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I won't disagree with that. Certainly won't. But the thing is, because obviously Ace was a young girl and was growing up and now she had a troubled um, a troubled home and was actually snatched from that home by mysterious forces, mm. it made for a much more interesting character because she suddenly saw her learning about herself and also actually finding having an adult figure that she can trust in that is not only almost a parent role, but someone that is her friend. Yeah. And someone that is willing to show stuff to her and explain stuff to her when it suits him. Um, so season 24, I think, was like, it, it grabbed me. And I also saw this character that I just thought was so cool because she made explosives and she beat up Daleks with baseball bats. <laughs> and and just all this all this amazing stuff that she did. And okay. And, and she said, wicked. And stuff like that, which I'm sure is a little eight-year-old me. I was suddenly using that word left, right, and centre. <laughs> and I, it wasn't I, even a crush. It wasn't even a crush at that point in time or anything. Although I did develop a massive crush on Sophie Aldred later. Because at that point, it was just like, this is a person I can identify with in Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, up to that point, we hadn't had anybody like that, had we, at all? Um, you know, so well, street smart. So street smart, and, and also young. Of, of like a teenager. I mean, I think I'll try to think the last time we had a teenager, I suppose, was really Susan. Mm, technically, Nissa. Mm, technically, but, but she, alien, but, so not. Yeah, really and great. she and she was extreme, well, almost on a, on a, a, an intellectual level with the Doctor as well, really. So um, same with Adric. Yeah, he was. He just well, he deserved to get blown up, really, didn't he? So, so you had Susan. <laughs> you had Dodo. Mm-hmm. Very briefly, you had Victoria. Victoria, definitely a teenager. <clears throat> but I think that's more like the Victorian teenager, wasn't it? There wasn't like a modern 
And Polly was late teens, early 20s, I guess. Yeah, I guess. But that was sort of uh, a, better, a better description, really. Sort of the, the, the sort of... How can I put it? They're, they're, they're sort of version of the 60s... I, can't think, I really can't think of a better way to describe the 60s Dolly Bird, isn't it? Very That contemporary 60s. <laughs> Really? Yeah, I mean, she joined the TARDIS with a sailor. You know, I mean, that's where we go. <laughs> <laughs> Ace, Ace was really... I mean, a lot of the companions did represent society at a time. I mean, you can't look at Joe Grant and say that didn't represent the 70s. No. Just like you can't look at Sarah Jane and say that didn't represent a very, very important movement of that part of mm. the 70s. Yeah. So, and then you've got Tegan. Yes. Okay, yeah. uh, but so, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so Ace Ace was relatable. Ace was cool. Ace actually did the action stuff that the Doctor couldn't or wouldn't. Yeah, possibly a bit of both. Yeah, I think. But, yeah, I, yeah. I was going to say more, more, probably more on the wouldn't side of things, but um... so it was wonderful, and I, and to be honest, I loved every single moment of season twenty. Um, 25 i had it all on tape recorded off air with the linking materials afterwards and i watched it to death while i was waiting for season 26 to come around yeah and and then and also i love because there, obviously there was that thing of kind of like ace was getting a little bit more wise to things and also getting a little bit more curious about the doctor because season 25 did a lot to reinvigorate that mystery in him you know some of it was a bit ham-fisted yeah. Like, oh, didn't we have trouble with the prototype? What do you mean, we? Oh, mm, flippy floppy. Yeah, was it, the, was it the so-called, was it Cartmill Master Plan, wasn't it? Oh. Which, which he denies, um, apparently. Yeah, they were so. making it up as they go along. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but And then we get to season 26, which, and this is where I make a controversial statement, in that I think season 26 may be one of the best consistent seasons of the 80s for Doctor Who. That That is quite... Um, contentious actually what why, why would you say that well what, what sort of uh um well it did suffer heavily from budget cuts i mean yeah. it had great ideas for every single story even if the execution suffered due to budget or bbc restrictions mm. it had an overriding story arc which was actually really taking the evolution of ace making her confront her past her present and her future yes it had stellar performances in every single story from McCoy and or Aldred. It had killer supporting cast. We saw the Brig come back. We saw the Master come back. And the Master being effective for probably the first time since the Keeper of Traken and Logopolis. I would agree with that, actually, because it, was, it wasn't that how Anthony Ainley always wanted to, to play the Master. Rather he was a bastard he, in this story. He was, in yes. Survival. Yeah. So you've got all those elements and you've also got, again, probably the first truly great gothic horror Doctor Who has done since Baker mm. in The Curse of Fenric yeah. and Ghostlight. I mean, Curse of Fenric is more mm. your Night of the Living Dead. Ghostlight is your hammer horror, creepy haunted house. Yeah. Battlefield, it had some major problems, but there's no way you can tell me that the concept of space knights coming to Earth, battling unit, giant blue monster, that's cool. <laughs> you know, that that is the sort of thing which I would love to see Doctor Who do now, because space knights, knights that fly through space, just amazing. And the problem is, of course, the budget went out the window and they didn't have space knight costumes. They just had knight costumes and we'll stick some LEDs on them. Yes. 
Yes, it, it, yeah. Unfortunately, he didn't sort of that angle didn't quite pay off. But I, I enjoy Battlefield actually. You know, despite, and, um, despite his shortcomings. Yeah. Um, blanking on a name. Why am I blanking on it? Jean Marsh. Come on, help me. Thank you, Jean Marsh. Jean Marsh just brilliantly, and her little speech at the end when she finds out that Arthur is dead. It's brilliant. And also, I love just the interactions between McCoy and the brig. Yeah, and and both. also the fact that the Doctor again, this is hinting at his power, is just marching onto the stage and and just shouting, "There will be no battle here!" and boom, everything stops. Stops. Yeah, but. But through all this, you've got Ace. And while I've just talked about all these other people, Ace is the linchpin because it's all the stories are set on Earth. Mm. And all of them tie into her somehow. Yeah. Questioning her faith in the Doctor because he doesn't tell her what's going on all the time. Feeling used and manipulated by the Doctor, which he is actually doing. He, he is. doesn't enjoy it and he doesn't want to do it. And he even confesses that. But he's he is playing games. He's become a master manipulator. And so by seeing her betrayal, we kind of get a bit of that as the audience, particularly as a young audience. So here's this character that I've been brought up to trust. And yeah. can I trust him? Yeah. And you've got her in um, uh, Curse of Fenric and Survival confronting her distant past and also confronting her present. Yeah. Um, with Survival, she goes back to Perryville. She goes back to where she was from. She finds out what's happened since she's left. And I just, and she's so good in all of them. Sophie Aldred is such a vastly underrated actress. She she's always been able to act young for her age, which I think is something that a lot of people struggle to do. Yes, they do in those. But, yeah, but she never had an issue with that. She she uh, partly because of how she looked, but also because of how she carried herself and her body language. It exuded youth. And yeah, so I do, honestly I think season twenty six is hands down the most consistently decent Doctor Who of the eighties because even the the Tom Baker stuff of the eighties. Some of those stories plodded and they just really went nowhere. Peter Davison had mixed bags all the time. He did, he certainly did, yeah. Poor Colin. I mean, I love Colin Baker to bits. I think his big finish audio work is probably some of the best out of any of the Doctors. Yeah. But as a TV Doctor, he struggled. And then McCoy. McCoy came at a time when the writing was already on the wall. Doctor Who was not going to last because no. people within the BBC were gunning for it. They, exactly, it was. It was on what time he took over. Unfortunately, it was on borrowed time, wasn't it? it? It really was. And then you look ahead to what season twenty-seven could have been, which we have actually seen actualized thanks to Big Finish. Yes, in part, and just the idea that the Ace would go on and go to Gallifrey, and you would actually, for the first time ever, have a character grow up yeah. in Doctor Who, not just suddenly go. I've fallen in love with an Earthman now. Goodbye, grandfather. <laughs> or or, or I've fallen in love with people. Yeah, or I've fallen in people two episodes ago, and now I've fallen in love with the Gallifrey guard. guard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, there was there was a proper, I suppose, for the first time ever, a proper character arc for a, for a companion, which had never been really been done um, at all up until that point. I mean, I think they, well, no, they didn't. I was going to say maybe Susan, but no, they didn't because she. I think Carolyn Ford has since said that um, the way Susan turned out was not how the character was pitched to her. They toned down the oddness of the character. So she's just become another 
sort of screamer falling over twisting their ankle kind of companion so um which I'm, I'm glad they didn't do with with ace i must admit um I, it's ace isn't one of my favorite companions i'm, I'm going to be perfectly honest here um and i think it's nothing to do with sophie aldred it's nothing to do with the the scripts or the fact they gave her a character arc i think it's just some of the 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 team dialogue they lumbered her with now and again it, it, it kind of all oh, really is that the best you could have done the thing is, is some of it was disturbingly accurate for the time, just like a lot of the 80s, it hasn't aged well. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, the one thing you did miss out there, actually, because you leaped straight from survival to a uh, big finish, you missed out Dimensions in Time. Because let's not forget... Sorry, she... the, the <laughs> Skype, Skype just broke up there. I, I didn't catch that. <laughs> well, I thought I just had to what, mention... What was that? Yeah, what was that? Just for completeness sake, that was all. But No, sorry, it dropped out again. <laughs> Big finish, I, I big finish. There we are. Big, big finish, yeah. Big yeah. finish. Um, well, actually, no, I will tell you, I will say you something. Okay, I'll acknowledge the existence of Dimensions in Time because it did give us um, Ace and John Pertwee, which I'm just like, my God, what a combination. <laughs> Venusian Aikido and Nitro 9 just blowing shit up all over the place and karate chopping the hell out of it. Oh, come on. That's, that sounds fantastic, doesn't it? <laughs> but other than that, no, Dimensions in Time can go to hell. Yeah, it can. Um, um, yeah. In fact, it already has. Oh, it has, yeah. Dimensions in time is purgatory for Doctor Who fans. <laughs> um, but but then but big finish. I mean, there's a lot of the old companions have returned, and okay, we can just about believe that Nissa is still a teenager. <laughs> Mark Strickson, mm, uh, yeah, okay. but 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 Sophie Aldred has actually played like kind of two or three different iterations of Ace mm. by Big Finish. Because she's played the kind of the ongoing range ace. She's played season 27 ace going back 10, 15 years. Yeah. And she's played new adventure ace, which was just, I mean, ace as a character evolved in the Virgin New Adventures novels to no end and became an even bigger and more interesting character and took what could have been a season 27 and ran with it. Yeah. So she's actually played three different iterations of her own character. All while at the same rough age. She, she's really great, isn't she, Sophie Aldred? She, she really is a, it, it, It's as much like Ace is my favourite Doctor Who companion, Sophie Aldred is my favourite Doctor Who um, classic series actress. Yeah. Closely tied with Liz Sladen. Like, like, literally, you're talking microns there. Well, not much in it for you. Not much in it. No, because the thing no. is, I love Liz Sladen, but of course, sadly, Sarah Jane Smith is an amazingly cool character as she was. She didn't really develop as a character over her run with Pertwee and Baker. No, the whole sort of journalistic aspect got dropped rather quickly, didn't it? She actually reverted. Yeah. They only remembered she was a journalist when it actually they were in contemporary Earth and it suited yeah. the story. And it was only really later when obviously we came to New Who and they brought her back for school reunion and then um, Sarah Jane Adventures that suddenly she actually did develop a story arc, which is great because God knows she deserved it. She did. She certainly because she did. Because was, she was an important character. Yeah. I did actually just remember there were a couple of classic companions that did actually have a story arc. The first two companions. Ian and Barbara. In Barbara, of course, yes. They joined as two teachers that may have had a bit of a spark, and when they left, they were a couple. Yeah. 
it was a bit ham-fisted, but they still attempted it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, of course, they, they all sort of not trusting the Doctor as well, Ian and Barbara, didn't they? They were sort of... They were basically... I'm not surprised he tried to kill her. <laughs> He's a total git. He was. But then, come as you say, sort of come the end, you know, they, they took their chance to leave, and, and the Doctor was really sad to see them go. You know, so... Um, that they sort of brought that character arc in, in with them, so yeah, they, maybe there's been more than I've sort of given it credit for, to be honest. But um, not by much. Not, not no, by much. not by much. Not by no. much. But, but but yeah, but I think Ace was groundbreaking, and I think set the template because every companion since has had some sort of story arc. Yeah. You know, oh, Rose yeah, has, has had a yeah. story arc. Martha kind of bit. Martha, they botched. Yes, they really they botched. Did. Yeah. Um, to a degree, they did well with Donna at first, but then they they fumbled it. At, they they cocked it up at the end. Yeah, just a terrible, horrible ending. Um, Mickey, I felt bad for. They didn't do a terribly good job with him, but they tried. They tried to give story arcs to characters. Yeah, and it's that it's that whole thing that you know that they're much better under the influence of the Doctor, sort of thing. That he, he makes them better people. I think is what they are trying trying to allude to. I think to a certain degree. And they make, yeah, and they make him a better person. Yes, yes. Certain, which yeah. actually came, comes right back to the, ninth, the beginning of The Ninth Doctor, which is Rose helped him find a little bit of his humanity again. Yeah. And, and also particularly with the Twelfth as well. Oh, God, yeah. 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 I, I, mean, don't, he... do, I don't do human stuff now. No, grump. No, exactly. That's, that's what um, sort of... Um... Oh God! Do you know what? I've got a complete blank on her name now. Um, Clara, that's it. Thank you. My God, it's robbing me. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Clara sort of helped sort of you know soften the, do- the you know the, the rough edges of the Doctor's new new regeneration, really. So, um, which is also, I think, the first time they've done a story arc for the Doctor like that. I think you're right. They wanted to do that. With, I know we're going way off topic now, but they, they wanted to do that with Colin Baker, didn't they? They wanted to sort of start off with this sort of you know this really traumatic regeneration and he was meant to sort of um you know you know he tried to murder perry in his first story then he sort of he was meant to sort of soften but he never really got time to to do that did he no really? it is um is it, the, the the scripting and the tone of his stories were schizophrenic so it was all yeah. over the place and you say we've gone off topic but we haven't because it all comes back to ace which was the first character they really did it properly with I mean, I did just, it came to my mind, my second favourite, no, sorry, third favourite classic companion, because Sarah Jane is my second. Third is Romana, specifically Romana 2. But Romana had a bit of a story arc, but to be honest, part of that was by necessity of recasting. Yeah. But but they did kind of, they dumbed her down for Romana 2, which sucked, but it made her a more entertaining character because she beca- she developed a really cool sense of humour. And, yeah, she and did, there was yeah. A, there was obviously a natural chemistry with Tom Baker for reasons that, Yes, we, we, we now know. Rocking, yes, <laughs> the TARDISes are um, But uh, but no, I mean, so it all comes back to Ace, who was the first person to properly achieve this, mm. and who part of some of my favourite moments of the entire Doctor Who canon. Um, oh God, so much of Ghostlight, so much of Curse of Fenric. Um, the scenes between her and McCoy in Curse of Fenric are just when they're fighting yeah while the world is ending around them almost or at least their particular part of the world in whitby or wherever it was meant to be set but but that's all going down and they are just sparking off each other and it's so good 
Yeah, um, which we we hadn't had for a long time, really, with uh, at that point with the Doctor Who companion. They hadn't really sparked off one another. It never happened really with Mel, did it really? With with Colin Baker or um, McCoy. And I think I think McCoy and Sophie Eldred were um, they just they just hit it off anyway, didn't they? So I think that 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 came through. Absolutely, absolutely, and and also I think in survival there was the doctor was actually because like a lot of the time in like Fenric she seemed to be trying to rein the doctor in mm. at times but in survival it was the other way around he was trying to trying to kind of save her from a wildness that would consume her mm. and survival i mean yes it made the master evil and it had this whole wonderful kind of like we are the cat people thing going on and even though it was only really done by a a last-minute overdub. The, the end 30, 45 seconds of survival, probably my favourite scene in the entire Doctor Who history as they walk off into the sunset. McCoy's little speech and just them walking off arm-in-arm. Arm. I'm just like, yeah. that's a beautiful image. It if is. they'd never done anything with McCoy and Eldred again, if Big Finish had never existed, if the Virgin New Adventures had never existed, I'd have taken that as them riding off into the sunset. Yes, indeed. You you can believe they were just carrying on having adventures, and and and, and that would have been it, really, wouldn't it? You, as you say, you'd be quite happy with that. It really would and, be. And just to move on from to 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 move sideways with Ace, um, Sophie Aldred as a person, mm. like you occasionally hear that all oh, Tom Baker had a bit of a temper tantrum, or sometimes people can be this person can be grumpy, or this person demands this or wants that, or whatever. I've never met anyone who's had a bad word to say about Sophie Eldred. Any time I've met her, she has been lovely and warm and open to talking and good with all the fans, no matter how demanding they are. She she is just like the loveliest person. Yeah. And and I just like yeah, just like the hands down yeah, I say one of my favourite people involved in Doctor Who. And well, I was gonna say I think you maybe sort of want to go back and rewatch season twenty five and twenty six now actually. So. <laughs> I'd say I'd say definitely do it, um, and just be willing to take the rough with the smooth, as we all do. Mm. I mean, again, I mentioned Peladon earlier. I watched both of those series. It doesn't matter if you stick a cape on it. Alpha Centauri is still a giant cop, <laughs> but we take the rough with the smooth. Exactly, exactly. So you're going to watch Battlefield, and it's going to get to the moment with the boom, and you're just going to have to roll with it because guess what? It was badly edited, and they didn't have the money. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which I is mean, all, uh, always against Doctor Who, wasn't it? Always. At least the DVDs fixed the audio mix. Yes. The dialogue in Ghostlight now can now be heard, which is good because it's brilliant. I love Ghostlight. Ghostlight is just messed up. It's, it's totally it's, messed up. Totally messed up. It'd I mean, be brilliant. I'd love to watch it like dubbed into German, but with English subtitles, because then it would just be that quirky. <laughs> That that time, that quirky time when the German impressionist director decided to make a haunted house Doctor Who in German. In German, yeah. Oh, that that would that would be an interesting um, premise. There actually, but if you, I mean, just to sort of um, sort of kind of sort of wrap things up. I mean, if you had to pick one Ace story, and it could be from Big Finish, or, or it could be one of the Virgin New Adventures, which I know we haven't sort of really touched on. Um, what, what what would you pick? What would you sort of like say? That's my definitive Ace story. Um, I'll just say, actually, one of the reasons why I didn't touch so much or talk so much about the Virgin New Adventures is, one, as I'll be honest, I can remember the broad outlines of the character, but I haven't reread them in a while. No, But also, neither. 
like we can talk about 25 and 26 and we can talk about the big finish stuff and people can go onto Amazon or they can go onto Spotify mm. and listen to a huge amount of big finish audio on there and it's all available. But a lot of the Virgin New Adventures are not. So you're then sending them on a wild car. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And also grossly inflated prices. Yes. But uh, but but um, to pick a story. Oh, God. Uh, I would probably actually go with Remembrance of the Daleks, because while it's at times a little goofy and a little ham fisted, it's it's actually a brilliant start to the season. And it's a brilliant kind of like outline of Ace's character. Yeah. I'll also, you get to see her have a fist fight with Mr. Bronson. <laughs> now, that's probably something you never thought you'd ever say. <laughs> I doubt it's actually the first time I've said it, to be fair. But, so, yeah, so for TV, I'd go with that. For Big Finish, I'd actually check out when they turned the season 27 stuff into audio adventures because I thought they did a stonking job of that. So, that's uh, Thin Ice Crime of the Century Animal on Earth Aid. Yeah, those are the ones. Those are the ones. I thought, yeah. yeah, I thought they did a great job on that. I was very happy with them. Yeah, I love Thin Ice. Actually, I think it's a really, mm. really good, um, really good story. I imagine that you know, the bring back the. I'd love to see what they did with the Ice Warriors on the TV at that particular time. Actually, yeah, I'd love to see what they've done with them. But um, oh well, at least we found out what they're going to do in the audio anyway. That's the that's the main thing. That's the main thing. Always helps. It does. It does. Well, Ash, thank you very, very much for joining me um, this evening. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug before we well, before we say goodbye? Um, for when it pops up and, and things happen, follow Hammered Horror on Twitter. If you're interested in what I'm currently saying about wrestling or doing with wrestling, then look for Armchair Bookers on Twitter. And I'm sure you can tag Twitter handles into the description. I can indeed. First. I can indeed, yes. And... Um, and yeah, and if you are a classic Who fan that perhaps hasn't given Ace a chance again, please do so. Because if you can slap on the rose-tinted spectacles and just be willing to roll with it, you're looking at one of the best companions that Doctor Who, classic Doctor Who ever did. There we go. I think that's an excellent time to, to wrap this up. Ash, thanks very much. Not a problem. Happy to talk. to the Who's He podcast. Please visit our website at who's-he-podcast.co.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter at who's underscore he underscore podcast. And please also join the Who's He podcast Facebook group. The Who's He podcast is a member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. Mm-hmm.